Today's discussion is brought to you by Recovery Network of Programs, whose mission is to restore hope, health, and well-being for individuals and families in a recovery environment that embraces compassion, dignity, and respect. Recovery Network of Programs has served the greater Bridgeport, Connecticut community since 1972. If you have an interest in working alongside other committed professionals at RMB, please go to www.recovery-programs.org and click on the careers link. And on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the Connecticut Certification Board, I'd like to welcome you to Scope of Practice. According to Dr. Don John DeJarles, an award-winning public health physician and professor, there are four historical components that really provide context to the harm reduction movement in our country. And, and this study goes from, from 2017. He says, we have a long history of moralistic com- condemnation of psychoactive substances in America, going back as far as the Puritans, which he also says is really kind of interesting since the Puritans drank a lot of alcohol. Um, We also have what we recognize as the demonization of specific psychoactive substances that are associated with stigmatized racial and ethnic groups. And then that goes back to John Ehrlichman's statement when he talks about the drug war targeted the black leaders and the leaders of the anti-war movement. And the federal government significantly delayed support of harm reduction programming despite the data to support its efficacy. And even with the growth of biomedical research after World War II, the great majority of scientists studying the problem of substance use disorders proposed abstinence as the only solution. Even with the recent White House ONDCP statement promising the enhancement of evidence-based harm reduction services, most notably those being syringe exchange services, fentanyl test strips, and access to naloxone, there is still much work today to do. Our guest today works nationally to advance the life-saving cause of all harm reduction efforts and will help us get a clearer picture of the harm reduction movement. Tanagra Melgarejo was born and raised in Puerto Rico and is the proud daughter of Mexican and Cuban immigrants. She has over 20 years experience in the fields of organizational and program development, evaluation, technical assistance, community organizing, and direct service with underserved, over-surveilled, and stigmatized folks particularly with Latinx communities. She currently holds a national learning and engagement strategist position at the Harm Reduction Coalition. Her commitment and passion for harm reduction started out in our backyard here in Holyoke, Massachusetts in the 1990s, while she worked as a popular education director for a local HIV prevention program. Before moving to Oakland, California, she was working in Puerto Rico with women who are survivors of gender-based violence, focusing her work and activism around economic and human rights of women. She holds a master's in social work from the University of Puerto Rico and was a lecturer for social work students at the University of Puerto Rico, Rio Pedras campus and the University of Turabo in Gurabo. Finally, Tanagra identifies herself as an intersectional feminist who believes in decolonization as the way towards liberation. I am very pleased that she accepted our invitation to join us today. Tanagra, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to uh, be here with you and um, also uh, with your listeners. We're very glad to have you. And I think it's it's time that we we talk about uh, harm reduction in the bigger picture. And I actually think it's well past the time that we should have done this earlier. So just kind of to, to start out, you know, the, the term harm reduction, it, it conjures up a lot of thoughts and emotions of so many in the world of substance use disorder, um, prevention, recovery, and, and treatment. So let's start from a really logical place. Um, 
Can you provide us with a working definition of harm reduction? Yes. Um, the way that I see harm reduction, um, I see it as both a framework, a philosophy, and a space to act from. So for me, harm reduction is a way that we providers, people that work with other people can see ourselves and can see the people that we work with and really uh, do that from a place of respect, empathy, care, uh, and compassion. I think harm reduction is uh, gives us tools that are really practical and concrete to approach uh, folks and support them in identifying or in, um, I think, identifying behaviors that they feel they would like to change. Mm -hmm. And also gives us the room to work with folks that don't think they have to do anything to change as well, right? It is about keeping people safe and keeping people alive. So harm reduction to me is something that is applicable to everybody, right? Harm reduction is applicable to every context and every situation because it is about viewing human beings and recognizing their humanity and recognizing that they deserve respect, care, and compassion, regardless of whatever behaviors we may be engaging in. When you talk about care, compassion, and respect, it, there's a disconnect for me in the real world of those who work in substance use treatment who struggle with harm reduction, because we all come from our work, we hope, right, as of a place of respect, care, and compassion. And the techniques and things may be different, but the mindset really is the same. So there's a disconnect for me for those who struggle to, to kind of grasp it or, or understand yeah. it. You know, what are some of the most common techniques or interventions? I know we mentioned a few earlier with syringe yeah. services and... Yeah. So I think harm reduction, when we think of harm reduction, a lot of people focus only on the tools or the, the equipment that we provide people. And harm reduction services is so much more than providing people with syringes or cookers or smoking or snorting kits, right? Harm reduction services encompass creating community centers. It encompasses uh, housing. It encompasses medication for opioid use disorder uh, and access to those. It encompasses having access to uh, food and nutrition, right? It encompasses drop-in centers. It encompasses reproductive care, right? It encompasses mental and behavioral health care. It encompasses aspects of physical care. So harm reduction services are just more than just providing people with X number of syringes or X number of cookers or X number of tourniquets, right? Those things are part of, uh, there are tools that folks can use to minimize risk, right? But services is so much broader than that. Uh, and so I think sometimes the people get stuck in the syringe and I think that's where we uh, find that tension, right? Because we're not seeing how much more uh, encompassing and broad uh, the scope of harm reduction services can be. It sounds based on what you're saying that the greatest thing that harm reduction services provide is that relationship, a connection to another human being who values that individual, period. Absolutely. You're so right. It is about relationship building. And in order to build relationships, it takes it takes the per two people. Right. It takes it takes community. So it's community building and it's relationship building at the individual level. Right. And it is about, you know, really believing uh, in people's ability to make decisions for themselves. It is about believing in people's ability to make choices for themselves. And it is about believing in 
people. Harm reduction gives us the ability to believe in people. And I think that to me, that's a beautiful piece of our harm reduction, right? The, the, the most important thing. It's like, you know, building community because we believe in the people that are part of that community. We don't keep people out or we don't keep people away, right? Uh, everybody deserves to be part of community. You know, you had just mentioned that it's not about what you give out, but what you create. And th that leads me to kind of something that we touched on a little bit already is that there are myths associated with harm reduction that are still prevalent, you know, despite evidence to the contrary. But it really seems that the majority of criticism comes from a place of an individual's ideology or what they perceive to be mor moral behavior, their own morality. Um, how do we combat that, especially for folks that work in the SUD field um, that are listening to us today? You know, I think that that's it's I, I whenever I um, I chat with folks, I think it's really normal for folks to have um, to react. I think it, there's something normal about that reaction because we're socialized to be in systems that tell us that there's good people and bad people. Right. That's drilled to us since we're jihai, right? Uh, we are racing systems that ask us to judge people and to, um, based on those judgments, to engage with them uh, differently in case that they're behaving in ways that we consider are wrong, right? So there's this idea of good and bad, right? This binaries, this opposites, this tension, right? Dichotomies that are there. And I think that part of what we can do is acknowledge we've been socialized this way, Right. And how helpful has this been? Right. Because ultimately, if we think about the way that the systems operate, right, um, they're not creating health for people. They're not creating health for communities. In fact, you know, if we think about it, you know, the, 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 the same system is perpetuating harms for people. And so I think that for me, when I came to harm reduction, I have to say that I wanted to be in a space where I could work with people. But in order for me to do that, I had to look at my own stuff, right? I had to look at my own prejudices, at my own judgments, at my own personal stances and understand that even though something may be good for me, it's not necessarily good for someone else. And that is not good for that other person doesn't make what works for me uh, worst or bad or not good, right? I think there's no competition in harm reduction, right? Uh, harm reduction tells us that there's multiple pathways for people to access care or should there be multiple pathways, right? That people uh, can um, find what works for them. And what we need to do is encourage people to find that thing that works for them and that it creates many opportunities for people to have choices mm -hmm. to work from. And so... Um, Part of that is recognizing that it's, if it doesn't work for someone else, um, it's fine. And what works for me, it's great because it works for me. And that what I believe is good, it's perfect because it's my own belief. But it doesn't mean that I need to impose that on someone else. And I think sometimes we are talking about people engaging in behaviors that are considered illegal, right? Because in this country, we have a vision of substance use as illegal. And immediately because it's illegal, we draw this conclusion that it's bad. And because it's bad, people are bad. And because people are bad, we need to keep them away because they're dangerous and they're harmful, right? And what we do is we harm more people. Like we, we create more potential exposure to harm for folks when we push them aside, we push them away, we stigmatize them, we dehumanize them, right? And I think that the piece that we need to be mindful of is 
the more that we do that, the less healthy our communities will be, right? And that we as people need to uh, think about what it would be like to be in the position of that person that we're stigmatizing, shaming, and dehumanizing, right? For me, that's what I do. It's like, how would it feel for me to sit in the seat that this participant is sitting in? How would I want to be treated? How would I want to be approached? And I think that that mind shift, that that way of thinking um, gives people the space to transform the way that they approach people that use drugs and the way that they approach the way that they use services, right? But it is a constant battle, right? Of really thinking about wanting to do things differently because we are in systems that are asking us to judge, to shame, and to stigmatize people. And so I think that that tension, it is, it happens because we're in those systems. And I think people feel really ashamed when we have conversations about this because they're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that I was harming folks, right? Um, because of the way that I think or feel about things. And it's, and for me, it is saying, yes, you know, we, we, we can acknowledge that and we can also change it. Right. And doesn't make you a bad person or me a bad person. But I think we need to to really be mindful that we cannot impose our beliefs on other people. Right. Right. Uh, Because that's, to me, a recipe for disaster. We've seen that happen for how many years? Like I I was just a couple of things as you were talking were jumping out of my head. And one is when we put our uh, what we believe in our morality and think that works for others. I have a colleague in the Portland, Oregon area, Dr. Bob Lynn is a very free thinker and speaks in the field. And he calls uh, that the fallacy of attribution, that it's that we believe our attributes go to everybody. But also as we talk about stigmatized populations and individuals, our patriarchal and, and ultra competitive society creates that and ultimately leads to the stigmatized population re-stigmatizing themselves that self-fulfilling population because that's what society expects and so um it's really something that uh is dark the way our society has created that it's very dark and but i agree with you is that uh, also as well as you know we may have made mistakes in the past and that includes myself and you i'm sure and it's because we didn't know better but once we know better we have the obligation to do better A hundred percent, because I think that piece that you're saying about that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's like, if you're exploited, this is what you think of me. Why should I behave any differently? You already have made up your mind about who I am and uh, what to expect from me. And so it's a setup for both us providers or both us people and and, and for the person who we're setting up, right? And I think that um, that piece around our, again, um, feminists have this saying that, uh, when you get to feminism, it's like if you wear glasses, you put these glasses on and they're this purple color glasses. And once you put the purple color glasses of feminism and you start seeing through them, you cannot unsee the harms that the patriarchy causes, not only women, but men as well. Right. And so I think when we put this harm reduction glasses on, right, I don't know if they're purple, but they can be whatever color we want them to be. Once you put them on, you cannot unsee the ways in which this system creates disparities for people. And it's disparities for all of us. It is an unequal system that is unjust and is harmful to everybody. It's just that the degrees that people experience harm are different based on how much power and privilege they hold, but they're still being harmed. Right. And so I agree with you that there's this moral calling. Like, and I think that that's where morality comes in. For me, it is immoral to be in society and live with people and feel okay 
that people are getting harmed every day. It is that people are discriminated every day, that people are stigmatized, that people are dying. Like 96,000 people died last year in this country. Those are, there's one death is, it's unwarranted. 96,000, we should be ashamed of ourselves, right? And, and, and I think that that's the piece to me that like, that's the outrage, <laughs> you know, we're going to be outraged about stuff. Let's be outraged about, you know, uh, stigma and discrimination. <laughs> You had mentioned it in your bio, a background in community organizing, and that's something I love. Uh, and when I think of community organizing, and I think of, of the, the biggest movement of my lifetime uh, is the HIV movement that Larry Kramer, who was one of my heroes, started. And Larry Kramer had a role, and he knew his role, and it was to raise hell. And he worked with those who could make the incremental changes, and they both had a role, and they understood a role. And we talk in, in the harm reduction field as if we don't have people like that, but we do. We have, um, you know, uh, people that advocate and are the loud speakers and individuals yeah. like Maya Salovitz, um, yeah. you know, who's who's her, her writing is incredibly astute. She just recently had something um, in Time magazine, which was was fascinating. But also Dr. Carl Hart, who is brilliant, but a lot of his ideas get thrown away because he goes to an extreme that others but their message is the same how do we get people to listen to those messages kind of take what is important out of it and you can let go of of what you don't agree with but the message is what's most important how do we get people to pay attention to that i think we need to think community organizing is about relationship building right um there's a lot of work that goes into uh, connecting with people or finding ways to connect to people and get people to understand that it is important. Solidarity is, is, is important, right? Uh, and for me, solidarity is acting and supporting people, even if what they're fighting for is not something that necessarily benefits me directly or that I see that what they're challenging doesn't necessarily harm me directly, but that I want people to have my support because I believe all of us should be uh, able to live free and happy and well, right? And so I think that piece of community organizing is working, building relationships with people and establishing those relationships from a place of solidarity so that they can understand, you know, that when we speak about harm reduction, it is not only about working uh, with people that use substances, that it is about community and that it is about you and me and us, that it is important for us to think about the ways in which we can contribute uh, to together build a place, a society, right? That it's safer and healthier for all of us. And that it may be hard for us to see or understand why people are fighting for these things when they don't impact us directly. And I think that's a piece of solidarity that goes connected to empathy too, right? And it is work. It is a lot of work. We need to be able to build those relationships. And that means that we sometimes need to identify folks in the community that can speak the same language uh, that those folks that we want to bring into the space um, that they can hear, right? And so I'm a social worker. 
And I feel really comfortable talking to two other social workers about the impact that uh, that we can have in people's lives and the role that we historically have had to harm people, to survey people and to police people, and that we've done it for the state and that that is not okay, right? That our role should be different. And so I feel okay having those conversations with people and challenging with people some of those notions, right? And getting into those discussions uh, from a place of respect, empathy, and care. Right. Uh, we, Hamidoshan asks us to meet people where they're at. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the, uh, I think, the underpinnings of harm reduction. And sometimes meeting people where they're at is having this uncomfortable, difficult conversations with folks to build relationship and to build community. Right. And so I want to hear what people's uh, opposition or what their gut reaction is to harm reduction. I want to hear why maybe the arguments that Dr. Carhart or Maris Labitz or Imani Woods or Edith Springer or um, Dan Baig or, you know, any of our harm reduction leaders may have, uh, Joyce Rivera, right? Um, uh, any of those folks that uh, thought about harm reduction, what would, what are the, what are you hearing? And I want to see how you're hearing it differently and then find a way in which we can hopefully hear it the same way, right? And so that takes time. That relationship building takes time and it, it takes time. It's uh, And it also calls on the other person to do some internal work. Uh, the folks that may discard the arguments of Dr. Carhart may discard them because they are scared or afraid of change or embarrassed that maybe... Um, what Dr. Carhart is saying is something that they hadn't seen. Like I remember going to see Angela Davis many years ago when I was a student at UMass, UMass Amherst, and she came to speak and I've never seen her. And so I was there with a group of friends and I remember her speaking about the prison industrial complex. And I felt I had this reaction so visceral. I just stood up and left. I just left. I couldn't hear anymore because what she was saying is we're complicit. The prison industrial complex doesn't help any of us. It's very harmful and it's toxic and we should be opposed to it. We should be abolitionists, right? What was the call she was saying? She had this beautiful argument that was really logical about that. And I just couldn't hear it. And I remember sitting down at the student union. Anna, they used to have this couches and sitting there and start crying. And the reason I left and I started crying was because I realized as I was hearing Angela Davis, that what she was saying was true that it's what makes sense and that I have been lied to, that I have been lied to by my family, by my friends, by the school, by the systems to believe something else. And I was ashamed because I had been complicit in supporting and believing that that system would ultimately liberate us when it did and when it's actually imprisoning all of us, right? And that moment, that cognitive dissonance was too much for me. And I think sometimes this is what people are afraid of when they're we're having these conversations about harm reduction and thinking that, that visceral reaction to me tells me that that person is actually seeing things closer to the way that we see it than they want to let on. And it's hard because you have to make a choice, as you were saying. And that making that choice sometimes means you have to break with stuff that you've have held dear and believe for a long time. You know, without question, the harm reduction movement is still continuing community organization. And I bring up Maya and Carl because they've been in the the news lately with a new book, with their new books. And excuse me, and I've spoken um, at conferences with Carl, and they serve two different roles. He, Maya is, um, challenges the status quo and does it in a somewhat kinder and gentler fashion, but it's not that kind and it's not that gentle. It's direct. 
But Carl goes right for confrontation and provocation. Um, I, yeah. I've seen him provoke a crowd and then grin, sit back at the table and grin about it. But they both do something, and that's called starting a conversation. And if I'm upset or offended at something somebody says, I want to talk about it. And we have to start conversation. And that's ultimately when we talk to each other and not at each other, how we build the relationships and build communities. It's got to start. And it's generally an uncomfortable start to make real change. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to be able to sit in that discomfort and messiness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we Instead of running from that. Uh, definitions of what recovery is vary from organ, organization to organization, from person to person. But uh, SAMHSA gives us a most a very inclusive def, definition, which I'm pleased with. It's they consider it a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. Using this as a guide, how does harm reduction fit in? It is harm reduction. Samsa, right. it's, it's talking about harm reduction without naming harm reduction because it's about self-direction. Harm reduction has six principles and three of its principles start with participant, participant-centered services, participant involvement, and participant autonomy. So what I hear Samsa saying is uh, there's multiple pathways. So it is about people having choices and recognizing and respecting people's choices. I may come up with some choices and, uh, fo and folks can present other choices so that we have a smorgasbord or a buffet of options for people and that people get to make to choose what they want. So there's that self-direction there. That's the autonomy that we need to respect. Right. And there's also a piece for me around believing in people's capacity and believing in people's expertise, centering those voices. Right. Allowing the person to make those decisions because we trust that they know what would work best for them and also not shaming people saying this is a process. And so in processes, uh, it's not linear, right? Processes usually um, you move forward and then you move back and then you stay and then you stop and move sideways for a minute to take a break and then you go ahead, right? And so it's understanding that because that it's a process, there may be times along the way where folks realize, you know what, I started doing this it was working for me. It's no longer working. I'm going to go back to the drawing board and explore other things. And that we, as part of a community, support folks in that. That we create a safe space for people to try on new things or different things. And that they can put and piece things together to get to the place where they want to get to. So to me, what Sam is talking about is harm reduction. That's why I love it. I'm like, this is harm reduction without naming it explicitly. You know? I think everything that we do in this field is harm reduction. You can mm -hmm. call it whatever term you want, but it's about protecting the individual that we're working with and hopefully yeah. protecting them in a way that that they choose, helping yeah. them find that way. And and when we meet someone where they're at, which <clears throat> harm reduction clearly does better than other part aspects of the field, when we meet someone where they're at and we give, allow and support and encourage and praise that self-direction we're allowing people to learn about themselves and and determine through a process of give and take uh failures and successes so to speak learn what works best for them that it's that we're living and growing and i think from the outside we look at it and say here's where someone is and they just want to get clean syringes well for some people that may be true and for others, yeah. it may not be. It may be a lead into something else. 
Absolutely. Um, and and I, I think positive change has to be encouraged and celebrated. And even in the clinical world, Dr. Scott Miller in, in Chicago talks about building a therapeutic relationship by truly meeting the client with where they're at, asking them what they want, meeting their goals, and letting them tell us how we are helping them meet their goals. Are we good at it or, or are we not good at it? And it's just fascinating because it, it's all relationship building. It is, yeah. And it's about really believing ourselves to be partners in this work, right? And so it's thinking about us as providers, social workers, as a social worker, I was taught, like, I'm the expert. I need to tell people what to do. I know what they need to do uh, because I hold all the knowledge, which is not only arrogant, but also I don't want to wait. I don't want to have that weight on my shoulders. I don't want to be responsible for that. That is really oppressive, right? So it's shifting that and saying, for me, it is about saying, I have some knowledge. I have some tools and some things that I've gathered along the way. And consensually, I will work with the person if they want to work with me in partnership. And they are the drivers of this car up to the moment that they tell me, I need you to step in and drive because it may make more sense for you to drive it, right? Sometimes it makes more sense for me as the provider to open some doors or to make some calls or to initiate certain things, right? But that is with the consensual approval of the participant, right? I think it's, again, it's shifting our mindset in terms of how is it that we show up as providers to do this work, right? That That is the key to this too. It is that, that, that vision of us working in partnership with others. And, and that goes right into kind of the next thing I want to talk about is one of the things that the I really am impressed by and drawn to the harm reduction movement is that it places value on every life that especially just because of the folks that we see in many is the lives of people who use drugs. And in the SUD industry, the abstinence only treatment and focus ostracizes those folks and ultimately says your life doesn't matter until you do things our way. And yeah. harm reduction services and the models throw that out and say you matter what you want matter and i think it's it's a much more democratic way of looking that you know one vote one person one life is one life and it mm -hmm. and it has value and we yeah. forget sometimes in the field that individuals who use drugs are our families our friends maybe us exactly you know, and i think it's important so um so, you know, we look at recovery as fitting into a certain pathway rather than whatever a person chooses to improve their life in any way. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about the Harm Reduction Coalition and, and how it engages uh, people who use drugs in the efforts to change this and how it partners with, with individuals? We do that through our, the, so the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, it's sort of the umbrella under which harm reduction programs can exist, right? And it, that means that we provide support, we provide whatever um, tools we have, we offer them to folks. And we do that through different avenues. We do that through capacity building and providing technical assistance. We do that through our policy and advocacy work. We do that through bringing people together to be with each other to learn from each other through our national conference, right? We do that through providing over those education uh, and prevention uh, materials and access to folks, right? So we do that through different avenues. And we also do that through having conversations with folks that are operating harm reduction beliefs that recovery is part of harm reduction. Harm reduction believes that abstinence is part of harm reduction. Harm reduction believes that medication for opioid use disorder is part of harm reduction. 
And what we don't believe in is imposing that on people, right? It has to be the choice of the person. And we also believe that there can be multiple definitions of recovery for folks, right? And there can be multiple definitions of abstinence. And that my definition of abstinence may look really different to someone else's definition of abstinence. And that is okay. As long as the person tells me I feel safe, I feel better, I feel well, I am in community, I am experiencing my life more fully and healthier than I was before, that it should be okay to me. The piece is sometimes we judge that and we say, oh, well, that person is not in abstinence because they're using cannabis, right? Uh, And I'm like thinking, well, are they using the substance that they understood or recognize as the substance that is problematic for them? No. Have they not used it and they have, they don't have that relationship with it. They transform it. Yes. So that to me means that that person is abstinent because to them, the substance that they have identified as problematic, they're no longer engaging with it. And if cannabis is a tool that they can use, the same for medication for opioid use disorder is the tool that they can use to be healthier, be better, be fulfilled have well-being, then who am I to judge that, right? Why should I feel that I can judge that and make those judgments? Who gave me or granted me the judging, uh, you know, the judging sword, right? And I think sometimes, you know, that's the piece that we uh, need to be mindful of. It's like, we need to be okay with having multiple definitions and understanding that things are not black and white, that there's a lot of shades of gray, And that is okay that there's those nuances that are present and that we need to okay, we need to be okay with those nuances. Sometimes we need to have the security and safety. And I think making those judgments and being really uh, dichotomous or operating in those binaries really helps, but that's not life. That's not sustainable, right? So I think for me, when I think of recovery, I think of harm reduction as recovery and as a pathway to recovery also, right? Um, because harm reduction is the space that people can be in where they can be with other people to support them in restructuring their life if they want to, uh, engaging in, in, in different behaviors if they want to, and also being who they are, regardless of whether or not they want to make different choices. It, it recognizes people's humanity and recognizes that we deserve as human beings to be treated with dignity and respect. That we deserve that, that we deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, and we deserve to be part of community. Um, And I think that that's a piece for me that is so important whenever I have conversations about harm reduction with folks that are working in treatment. Um, It is, you know, treatment is part of the harm reduction spectrum. And actually, harm reduction organizations are really successful in supporting people and helping them get to treatment if they want and connecting them to treatment. I think many of the folks that get into treatment do so through harm reduction services because harm reduction services build those relationships of trust, allow people to come to themselves again. And when they're ready, if if and when they're ready, because it's not a prerequisite, then they can make that choice and they can be supported, right? And so I think that we need to work together in collaboration, um, not in opposition to each other, because that would be harmful to the people that we want to serve. And we don't want that. We try to, to structure our, our life and our society as if it's an on-off switch when it's really the dimmer switch yeah. that we're adjusting along the way. So there, it's not just black or white. There are shades of gray along along the, the spectrum. Um, while we're on the subject of harm 
Reduction Coalition. Can you tell our audience uh, more about the organization and the mission of the organization? So uh, Harm Reduction Coalition began um, in 27 years ago, and it was actually organized or founded by a group of folks that uh, identified as people who use drugs that were being left out of conversations that were happening around the impact of the HIV pandemic in people's lives. And so they were being impacted, they were being harmed, they were dying from a, uh, from contracting um, HIV and it turning it into and having it turn into AIDS and they were not being included, they were being criminalized and persecuted. And so they decided, you know what, they're not including us in this conversation. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna create our own table and we're going to have conversations, we're gonna organize and we're going to push for change. And out of that was born the National Harm Reduction Coalition, which was founded uh, actually where I'm located at the East Bay in California and Oakland. And from that, we've become a national organization um, that, you know, uh, has a, a North Star statement. Um, and I, I'm going to try to remember our North Star statement, which is the Harm Reduction <laughs> Coalition creates uh, spaces for dialogue and action can, that can help heal the harms uh, caused by racialized drug policies. So we continue to work towards building spaces where we can not only talk about these harms, we can actually find concrete ways of um, of challenging and shifting systems, right? Not only for people that use drugs, for everybody in the community. So harm reduction also, it's really, um, the coalition is really um, uh, connected to other movements that are fighting for social justice, that are fighting for human rights, uh, because we believe that, you know, uh, those harms impact all of us. Uh, and so we do that, as I said, through capacity building and technical assistance, but we also do that through policy and advocacy. We do that through building community, through our conferences. We do that through supporting programs underground. Um, we uh, have, uh, we're also a grant maker. Uh, in the past three years, we've been able to, through uh, initiatives supported by uh um, Gilead to uh, launch, and we're actually in our third year of our HEP Connect initiative, which is an initiative supporting programs in the South in five states that are working to eradicate or eliminate uh, um, hepatitis C transmission, which we don't talk very much about, but also impacts a lot of folks. And so we have been able to grant over $10 million of funds to programs underground to do that work. And that has been beautiful in California. We're also a grant maker organization through uh, our California initiatives called SHURI, which is an initiative that funds harm reduction programs to do their work here in California. And so we've grown in this past 27 years to um, support the building of infrastructure and uh, of harm reduction services across the United States and its territories. And, um, and we really see ourselves also as as the hub, right? The hub where people can come to have these conversations, that people can come to be with each other, to really learn and build. Um, I think building uh, knowledge with each other is also really important. So uh, I, I, because, you know, uh, there's scientific proof that this works. We're not making it up, right? There's 30 plus years of studies that have shown scientific studies that are vouched, you know, like uh, that have been published in like peer reviewed, uh, you know, like the CDC, SAMHSA, HRSA, all of those government folks believe in what we do because we've shown that it works, right? Uh, right? And so Harm Reduction Coalition also has been involved 
in supporting the building of that knowledge so that our folks that are doing the work in community can have the, those tools and skills to also bring them to uh, to their people, right? So I think we are, um, we're in a place also right now of advocating hopefully to end the partial ban, uh, federal ban that uh, prevents programs from accessing federal funds to purchase uh, the equipment that you actually need uh, to help people minimize the, the potential of contracting uh, HIV, hepatitis C, or other soft tissue infections, et cetera. So we are in the process of trying to figure out how to do that and support folks on the ground around that. So, you know, we are, I um, think we are, as I said, the umbrella, right? We're like the, the connector. I think we're the glue that glues all the programs together, but the people who are doing the work are the people on the ground. And the people that are doing the work are people with lived experience, past or present, right? So it's really important for us to center the voices of those that have been most impacted by the war on drugs, uh, by the prison industrial complex, by, you know, all these systems. And that's people that use drugs, their families and communities. When you talked about the prohibition of things, you go right into the next thing. I think right into what I want to talk about. We've seen recently that in Canada, there was incredibly promising data about safe injection sites. Here yeah. in the U.S., they remain illegal under federal law, which was you know, recently upheld by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in just over a year and a half ago, or almost two years ago. Um, and the decision, which was specifically in relation to a proposed site in Philadelphia, we know that Philadelphia has been in the front lines of trying to make these positive changes, thanks to Dr. Arthur Evans and, and their behavioral health system. Um, but it was lauded by the acting uh, Attorney General of Pennsylvania as being consistent with Congress's intent to protect American neighborhoods from the scourge of concentrated drug use. Clearly, these individuals don't know what happens in every neighborhood in the country, but they're to protect from the scourge of concentrated drug use. Um, are there any efforts at this point that you know of to challenge this legal interpretation by the courts? I, mean, I think that that fight continues. California, uh, I think uh, New York State, uh, Philadelphia, Seattle, they're all trying. There are different places in terms of trying to pass local legislation to um, have safe consumption sites available for folks. That's one harm reduction intervention. That's like one harm reduction intervention in the multiple uh, spectrum of interventions that there are. If we look at data, harm, this is not new. Safe consumption sites have existed in Europe and in Canada for a long time, particularly in Europe and Australia for more than 30 years. Uh, there's been zero over those deaths associated uh, to people using safe consumption spaces, which means that they're safe, literally do their job. And they also offer the opportunity for people to get holistic care. Safe consumption spaces are spaces where people can come in and because they trust the space, they can, when they're ready, if and when they're ready, they can seek out access to other services and treatment. We've seen uh, safe consumption spaces uh, that are uh, work in tandem with uh, housing programs. We have seen safe consumption spaces, you know, that provide um, referrals, resources, access to medical care, to behavioral health care, to physical health care, food. They connect people to employment. They connect people to, you know, um, other interventions that they may need. And they're staffed by people. They're doing exactly what harm reduction is asking us. They're staffed by people who have experience, lived experience, peasant or past, you know, to support 
other people to use safely. So if I go to a safe consumption space, right, I am protected and I am also able to take care of my needs and um, and people in the community are all, that's like people in the community are also protected. So to me, you know, when I think of safe consumption spaces, I think that you know um, they are a vital tool that we can have available in the multiple spectrum of tools that we can use to support people. And also, this also to me, the, that that phrase tells us that there's people that are in denial that they don't want to see that drug use happens in their communities. That many people use drugs that you don't need to know who those people are because they're not telling you, right? And that um, you know it's been happening, will continue to happen, right? This is not going to shift or change. And so to do like the oh my god, has the the bird that I'm thinking in Spanish, the bird that puts its head in the sand. Uh, flamingo? Uh, flamingo? No, not a flamingo. No, it's the, the ostrich. Thank you. Yeah, they both have those long necks, right? Like to do like an ostrich is to do as a service, right? Um, I think that safe consumption spaces are part of harm reduction interventions. They're part part of the spectrum of public health and health interventions that we can offer people, um, and they have been proven to be successful. Um, and uh, they don't create more crime. They don't create uh, more harms in the community. If anything, they minimize those. And there's data that proves that. But the data is not enough because this is about what you were saying in the beginning. This is about people changing their views, their minds and hearts. This is about changing that moralistic stance, right? And changing the way that we view, the way that we approach community and the way that we approach people that use drugs within those communities. And I I ask about safe consumption spaces, probably for a, a selfish reason, because my dream job, would be to operate uh, such a space with medical providers and things where you're really a one-stop shop for people that are in the most need of any service that you can provide and you're doing it safely with trained professionals. Like that's my dream job. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, it's it's an extension or expansion of actually like what harm reduction is created, what harm reduction services are and providing reduction services with the equipment and also with the funding to be able to do that. Because harm reduction services already do 90% of that, right? Or 95. They have, uh, you know, if we had every harm reduction program have funding to have wound care on site, then we do productive health care and vaccinations and all of those things, then we could also include, this would be just another step. Yeah, if somebody is much more likely to bring problems with an abscess to a provider in a place where they feel safe, so they're not going to get judged and it can save their lives. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, in addition to that kind of moral and legal prohibition against drug use, the attorney general's words that we just mentioned really reek of something that we know really well called not in my backyard, right? NIMBYism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really believe that combating NIMBYism is uh, the, the role of all of us in this field. You know, so much so that I, I wrote an article last winter for Counselor Magazine talking about what the counselor's role in combating NIMBYism is and how do we fight this phenomenon, because I think that we have to do that as a field um, from the ground up. And, yeah. and so as we fight this phenomenon, how can we fight this fight more effectively? You know, I think that it needs to be more of us in the fight. I think that... Um, Part of what I've seen is that there's been folks experiencing a lot of burnout and fatigue from doing this work uh, pretty much alone. Because uh, 
I will say that I have heard things through the work that I've done that amaze me in terms of how incredibly cruel and damaging they can be. Like I was doing a side visit uh, with a group of folks. We're doing a listening session here in California in a part of the state that you would think it's very liberal. And we had invited people in the community to come and talk about, you know, what harm reduction services could look like, uh, where they're at and what is happening. And we were invited there actually by the librarian uh, who was uh, wanted to have this conversation because she wanted to support their patrons Right. And their patrons are people that use drugs also. And um, and she wanted to have this conversation. So we said, yes, of course. And so we invited people and we also had their people that were invited that identify as people with lived experience that were using drugs. And they told us that they were threatened to death, that their camper had been uh, put on fire by people that didn't want them to be there, that they had been spit at, uh, kicked. And so to me, when I hear that, um, I get really angry because who gives people the right to treat another human being like that with that kind of cruelty and disregard for who that per- for the humanity of that person, right? And I think that's the piece. I think NIMBYism is rooted in the fact that we are making the other an enemy that is not a human being. And if I can look at you and not see a person, it's so much easier for me to spew the hate and the venom that I spew, right? Because I also see you as a threat to me because I see myself reflected in you and that scares me. And so to me, it is our moral duty, all of us to combat Nimbyism because it will end up hurting us all, right? I think when we start, it's this very dangerous slippery slope to start saying, oh, I don't want this here. And then I don't want that here. And I don't want this here because then at some point, there's not going to be enough people left to not be here. And it's going to be you or me and that I are going to be like pushed ways. out. I think the field loses some effective ways or doesn't pay attention to it because we buy into that us versus them. Exactly. When it's really, again, it's about relationships. Mm-hmm. That if, if I can listen, and again, taking out those people on the extreme who are violent things, but people that have opposing views that are willing to listen, I can listen to their concerns and realize that many of their concerns are legitimate and I have to address them. People are concerned about property values. They're concerned about crime in the community. If they believe it's going to increase, I can't just say it's not going to happen. I have to show them that it's not going to happen. And so we can extend that hand and say, we're not here to fight you. We're here to work with you. And I think we get into that sometimes into that confrontational stuff too much that we fight back and we shouldn't or. I will say this analogy. I remember being in a class. uh, It was um, uh, a history of the U.S. 101 at at the university. And they were talking about how during slavery, they had slaves that were kept in the fields and slaves that were brought into the house, right? And how the slaves that were in the house were not better off in many ways than the slaves. They were still slaves and they were still oppressed and they still were uh, being raped and mistreated and abused. But the perception was that somehow those that were in the house were better off than the the slaves that were uh, in the fields. And that because they were fighting against each other, right? It allowed the slave owners to continue to operate and do the things that they were doing without any care that they would be caught or challenged, right? 
And so I see that I can translate that into what's happening here, right? It's like there's people in the community that have bought into or their fears, you know, had sort of like allowed them to connect with to this NIMBY uh, rhetoric. Um, and they see the people that use drugs or the advocates as the as the bad people, right? Uh, that are against them. And ultimately, you know, the the reason that we're in this position is because this system, capitalism, is creating the conditions for this to happen. Capitalism profits from poverty. Poverty makes money, right? And so as long as we are under this capitalist system, we're going to have this profound inequalities and we're going to have a situation where people are being pit against each other and the people who are truly profiting continue to do so because we're busy fighting here instead of really looking towards shifting and changing a system that creates inequality for all of us, right? You know, um, people are unhoused, not because they want to be unhoused, but because housing market and housing stock is impossible for people if you don't make, you know what the level of poverty here is in California? $150,000. It's, it's, so, so if you think about that, anybody who makes less than that is under the level of poverty here. So to be able to live a full life and that, I mean, to be able to pay rent, if you need a car, pay for your car, pay for your kids schooling, uh, what they need to be able to also enjoy your life, like have the ability to have pleasure by going out to dinner or to the movies or whatever those things are, you need to make about $300,000, you know, a year. And in that to me, it's like, who, who, I can't do that. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't. Um, and so to me, that that shows the, the incredible disparity, right, that there is like people are unable to access these things that they need, not because they don't want to, but because the system is making it hard for them to do so. And so I think for me, having these conversations with other folks is saying, you know what, let's look at like the fact that we want the best for our community and our community includes also it should include people who use drugs. Yeah, it's a, and it's the story of immigration in this country. It's it's an us versus them. And I've done a little research and looked at kind of Irish immigration um, because it's my background yeah. and how with the freeing of the slaves, the ruling class kind of said those slaves are coming for what you have what little uh -huh. you better protect it and so they create this fight and and feed into racism while they sit yeah. back and collect because because those at the bottom are fighting against each other for the little scraps yeah it, it, that's what it's the same thing here yeah just one final question for me and, and and that's how do we initiate open dialogue on harm reduction amongst our peers those folks that are listening many of whom may not share our view i think just starting it <laughs> <laughs> I think we just need to start it. I think we need to start it and I think continue it, right? I think that harm reduction should be part of our conversations. I think those of us that are working within systems such as the treatment system or the a system that provides medication for opioid use disorder, which is part of that in any of kind of like care systems, mm -hmm. we need to begin to have these conversations. We need to sort of think through our policies and practices and see where are the opportunities that we have to practice harm reduction where are the places we're already doing it? And where are the places when we're fighting some challenge or some tension or some resistance to that? And that's where we need to start having conversations to say, okay, why can why are we doing things this way? Why are we creating more barriers for people? Why are we making it more difficult for them and for us? What are the things that we can do to shift and change it? Right, and, con and, be and continue to 
and begin to or continue to bring harm reduction into the conversation as part of that care spectrum. Because harm reduction is part of that care spectrum, right? It is. It is that middle. It's that piece of the middle. Like that's where harm reduction lives. Like the people that will never seek treatment, the people that want to get into treatment or are in treatment, and then the middle is us. You know, so we are doing a disservice to ourselves and to others if we don't start um, having beginning or creating space for those conversations to happen. Um, I think it goes back to the overarching theme of what we've been saying and what you've been saying is it's about relationships. It's about relationships and conversation. We can you can move mountains by creating relationships. Yeah. You know, you you look at the difference between ants and cockroaches, right? Ants will work together and, and carry food back. Everyone knows their role and they do all do their part. When cockroaches just kind of live for themselves and maybe a bad example. But, but yeah, but I think that piece what you're saying of, 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 of like looking at the the benefit of working in with other people, right? And in community is that, you know, you're working together because you believe that working together will bring benefits that impact all of us, right? That those benefits will be felt by everybody. And I think that's the piece that we live in a society that is very individualistic or has taught us to do that. As a Puerto Rican, I think about asking people that are my elders, how did it look to be Puerto Rican 50, 60 years ago? And it was very different. It was very much community. You were raised by the people in your community. You had 50 aunts, 50 uncles, you know, 50 parents brothers and sisters because the community showed up and it was about the well-being of everybody and as this capitalist system continues to sort of like get its claws deeper in us it isolates us more and more and more so it's harder then to come back to do that relationship building where we're behind screens where we're using cell phones all the time where we think in social media you know i think it's sort of a role i'm not demonizing it but i think also it gives us this false, false notion of community and connection to others um, that to me, it's kind of dangerous, right? I think that we need to go back to that sort of like space of, you know, sitting down and, and building those relationships that you're saying, because I think from that place is that we can then think about shifting and changing uh, systems and shifting and changing the reality of our society, you know? Before we finish up, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I am grateful for the space and opportunity to be in community with you and with all of them today. And I really hope that, you know, if there's something that you heard here that really made you go like, mm, like that experience that I had with Angela Davis of sort of feeling some sort of way that you write that, that you explore why is it that you're feeling that, that you really stay in that place and really seek to learn more about harm reduction and its relationship, because I think that's the place where we can grow, right? Like from that place of discomfort um, and, um, and that there's a bit large harm reduction community that people can access through a national harm reduction coalition. Um, and that once you access that community, you won't ever be alone. And, and here in the greater Hartford uh, area, uh, the greater Hartford harm reduction coalition, Mark Jenkins, the executive director, they do fantastic work and Mark yes. is a very sought after individual to work in communities and things. So we're starting to see a, a, a more positive view and, and on the work that they do. And I certainly have to credit Mark for that. Mark Jenkins. A hundred percent. 
there are awesome human beings and if folks have a chance to go by and see the beautiful way in which they have built community, continue to build community and offer services to the greater Hartford community in general, whether you use drugs or not, I think that that's worth a trip to Hartford. Yeah, I sit on a committee with Mark here in a town where we both live. Yeah. Um, and it's not a harm reduction specifically, but the the value and, and knowledge that he brings helps everybody. And I think that's one of the nice things about this this group that I sit on in the community that so many ideas come to play uh, for one single goal. Um, I want to talk, I want to say thank you very, very, very much for joining us today. I have a feeling that this will not be the last time we speak. I would hope that it's not. I would hope to be here again uh, sometime uh, soon. And thank you for having me and for the opportunity to be here with you and your uh, listeners. Thank you very much. Thank Uh, you. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to again thank Tanagra Mel Garejo for joining us on behalf of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. You can get more information at HTTPS. harmreduction.org. And thanks again to Recovery Network of Programs and their Chief Executive Officer, Jennifer Kolakowski, for their financial support in making this podcast possible. Um, we welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor, and I can be reached at info at CT Cert Board for more information. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbeans, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. Join us next time as we talk to Kathleen Marriott, Executive Director of Healthcare Professionals for Responsible Prescribing, and that'll be available starting on November 20th. We'll catch you next time, everybody. 